Hi, and welcome back. I'm Patrick Polk, and you're listening to The Rules of Investing. The Rules of Investing gets inside the minds of leading investors, economists, and industry experts, and it's brought to you by Livewire Markets. Today's guest is Richard Ivers, Portfolio Manager at Prime Value. Richard has nearly two decades of experience covering and managing portfolios for Australian small cap equities. He also has a wealth of experience in the corporate world, having worked in strategy and consulting roles for finance and tech firms across Europe. He joined Prime Value three years ago, and the fund has returned nearly 20% per annum since. In this episode, he explains how his experience in the corporate world has helped inform his investment decisions. We discuss a range of Australian companies across the finance, media, and beverage industries, and he details how he takes a low-risk approach to Aussie small-cap investing. If you're an Apple Podcasts or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to be notified whenever I post content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Just head on over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free, easy to register, and you'll get access to insights from the leading investment minds in the country. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show. Richard, welcome to the show. It's good to be speaking with you. Thanks, Patrick. I'm a fan. I've heard that. I've heard that you've listened to many of the episodes of the podcast. Actually, before we get started, I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, what's been your favourite episode of the podcast to listen to? Um, I liked Jeremy Grantham a couple of weeks ago. I thought that was a great – it was actually probably a month ago, actually. That was a great interview and a, and a, and a great guest to have, you know, a, a global fund manager um, and doyen of the industry. So that was brilliant, I thought. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. It was um, it's a rare opportunity to get to speak to somebody, to somebody with his kind of breadth of experience. And you know, mm. how many people do you know who who started investing in the '60s? Yeah. I've I've come across a, a handful from like the '80s and '70s who are still in the industry, but people who who've, who've in, who invested through that period in the '70s are, are very very rare these days. Uh, but seems as we're talking about history and, and looking back at the past. Yeah. Uh, let's do the same here. I know you spent a bit of time, um, you know, travelling the world during the late 90s and early 2000s before you got back into your, your current um, kind of uh, career. Could you tell us a little bit about that? What's some of the experience that you gained during that time and how has it helped you in your investing career? Sure, Patrick. Yeah, so after uni, I went and worked in stockbroking for a few years. And um, I came to a fork in the road in my career where I was based in Melbourne. I had to make the decision whether to move to Sydney and become the head media analyst for, for a stockbroking firm at the time. And I knew I'd be working sort of 100 hours a week and spend all of my 20s basically inside an office or I had the opportunity to go overseas and do some travelling, which is what I always wanted to do. And I originally left with the intention to go for about a year and in the end I stayed over there about eight years and lived in London and, and Amsterdam and met my wife and did an MBA and then came back here in 2005. And in terms of the experiences, yeah, I mean, traveling is fantastic from a personal perspective, you know, in terms of the independence and the resourcefulness and it opens your eyes to a lot of different cultures as well because we, we travel through a lot of the third world and, and the more unbeaten tracks, if you like, parts of the world. And then from a professional perspective, I worked outside of markets, I actually worked within companies throughout that time. 
Uh, and that was interesting because um, when you work in the industry that we're in, you often think about companies in sort of a model, the way we model them and a spreadsheet, and they grow relatively mathematically. And in the real world, it's very different to that. They're rather organic creatures, businesses, and they're driven by things like culture and, and leadership and, um, you know, salespeople can make a big difference as well. So I think I've got a good understanding of, of businesses and the way they operate and can probably relate to management on the back of that experience as well. Yeah, it certainly uh, seems like very useful experience. I've spoken to a few, uh, you know, fund managers, investors and, and the like who've, who've had that real world experience and it really does seem to give you a, a different perspective on investing. You, you can't pay for experience, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And you know, I worked in software companies so you can actually relate the way that business model works back to listed companies now today as well. So it's direct experience as well. So yeah, absolutely. I thought it was really, really useful. Well, let's talk a little bit about prime value. Um, the the name seems to imply that you that you're a, a value manager. Is that right? <laughs> um, no, not necessarily. And you're not the first person to say that, Patrick. So, um, I mean, Prime Value was founded over 20 years ago and it's a multi-asset manager. So we manage assets across equities, which I obviously work in, but then property and income and alternatives as well. And when they came up with the name Prime Value, it was really about saying that the assets in which we invest have a fundamental basis and a value on which we purchase them, rather than that we are in an equity context, a value type manager. So um, it's it's really about that. In terms of the equity funds, we're really, we're style agnostic, but we have a GARP bias and GARP is growth at a reasonable price. So we're looking for businesses that can grow over the long term, um, but then we have a valuation overlay to ensure that we're buying them um, at a reasonable price. Um, and in terms of, you know, the, um, the, the sort of great investments and what we're looking for, we're looking for businesses with a long runway for growth. Um, you know, the earnings that are visible. So, you know, so we can clearly see what's driving those earnings and, um, and how they will grow. And normally um, it's a continuation of what they're doing and uh, so that, the, you know, you have confidence that they will continue to grow on that basis. Um, and in terms of valuation being reasonable, um, one of the great things about small caps is you can find companies that are very high quality businesses that are often valued as mediocre businesses. So um, over time, if those businesses grow and the, ma- the market starts to realise and appreciate the earnings power of the business, you get the earnings growth, but you also get that valuation re-rate as well. So you get the double kicker to the share price, which really drives spectacular returns and is one of the really um, the great opportunities in small caps. Um, and you know we have a we have a quality bias as well. Um, and when you when you think about quality, what is quality? We sometimes get asked, and sort of coming back to what I was saying earlier, I think a shortcut or a shorthand method for working out what quality is is that if you can think about a business and work out um, where those earnings will be and have a high level of certainty on where they'll be in three to five years, typically that means that it's a quality business because it's able to withstand all of the pressures and issues that may come at it over that period of time. Um, another way of thinking about quality is, is the pricing power of a business. So uh, if a business has the ability to put through pricing increases without much impact on volumes, that's normally a sign that it has a very strong competitive position. So there's exceptions to these rules, but they're good, good shorthand or short, shorthand rules for working out what quality is. So cheapness is a prerequisite, but not necessarily you're not looking for the cheapest stocks out there. You're just looking for the best stocks you can find that are also cheap. Is that right? That's sort of right. Not necessarily cheap. Even a fair price is okay. 
So um, what we're trying to do is we, we buy and we hold those businesses over a long period of time and we allow, allow the compounding earnings growth to generate the returns and the dividend yield, of course, as well. But it's um, you don't have to pay a cheap price. You can pay a fair price, but allow the business and the quality of that business to, 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 to generate a very strong return. When you can buy it cheap, that's obviously great because you get, you get even more return, but it doesn't necessarily have to be cheap. One of the things that kind of stood out to me when I was looking at your at your firm before this was that you managed to an absolute return benchmark. So there's mm. a set percentage uh, every year that you're trying to achieve. Um, you see a lot of that with hedge funds and things like that. You know yeah. where they where they do long short and use derivatives and all these fancy strategies to try and manage the risk. But mm. it's it, it is an unusual thing to see for a you know for a long only. Uh, stock picker, especially in small caps. Uh, so I'd love to hear, you know, why do you use this benchmark and how does it affect the way that you invest? Sure, it's a good question. So we have a benchmark, exactly as you said, of 8% absolute. So it's worth maybe going back to the foundation of prime value and where it comes from and the way that we think about investing, because that will give you some insight into why we do, why we do that as a long-only fund manager. And so prime value was a, is a family office. It was founded over 20 years ago. And uh, it's an independently wealthy family that's behind um, the business. I'm not part of that family. I joined prime value just over, over three years ago and come from a more modest background. Um, but in terms of the family, a wealthy family, if you think about how, how they think is that they have a lot of a lot of capital, a lot of money, and probably more that they can use personally. So one of the key rules for them is to not lose money. They don't actually have to make money. The, the rule is just don't lose money. Um, and with that way, of, with that mindset, then capital preservation is very, very important. So it's about not just making a good return. Obviously, you want to make a good return, but you don't want to lose money. And so there's a focus on generating positive returns um, and not just beating an index. And hence, that's why we have a benchmark of 8% absolute, which is um, an absolute in, uh, absolute benchmark, not just um, an index like most other fund managers. And that's not to say that having an index is bad. Um, it's just an absolute return index or benchmark for us, rather, is, is what suits us and the way we invest and the way we think about investing. Um, and the outcomes of that are really strong. So, you know, when you look at um, how the returns uh, are coming about, you know, we're, we're really, really strong in down markets. So in months when the market falls over the time that I've managed the fund, just over three years, we've outperformed 87% of the time. So very good def- very good on defence. And in months when the market rises, um, we're beating the market 55% of the time. So we're, not, we're pretty good at offence, but we're very, very good at defence. Um, in fact, the last time that we uh, underperformed the market in a month that the index fell was over two and a half years ago. So it's been consistently through that time. Um, so yeah, so it's it's that way of thinking um, and, and the alignment of that thinking with the benchmark and then it's, it's coming out in the outcome and the returns that we're generating. It sounds to me uh, like uh, a lot of the stocks might that you invest in might be what we'd call long duration. We've spoken about mm. this idea of duration on the podcast quite a lot this year. Mm. You know, stocks that a lot of the value comes from earnings that you or cash flows that you expect to make a long time in the future. So I'd be curious to hear how 
how some of the the dynamics in the market has affected your portfolio over the past, you know, kind of since November last year, we've seen there's been a lot of struggles for those yeah. companies that, you know, are defensive where you do have high visibility over the earnings. So how's that affected you? Are, there, are you finding more opportunities out there at the moment? Yeah, I think you're getting to the rising interest rates issue. Um, and you're right, but, but we aren't. We're still agnostic, but we are fundamentally in that that GARP space. So we do have a valuation overlay. So the businesses that we buy um, typically are reasonably valued. They're not excessive or, you know, those really, really high growth, high tech names where they're, they're unprofitable for many, many years. And then all the valuation is based on the profits in 10 years time. In fact, it's pretty rare that we actually own a business that is unprofitable. Um, so we're not really in that space. So we've performed strongly through that that rotation to value. We've outperformed through that period. Um, and, we're, and, and the beauty of small caps is that there's so many stocks out there and things are changing that I always find there's opportunities, you know, and particularly in the environment that we're in now with COVID, um, you know, if you do your work consistently coming into crisis, you know, in the normal course of business, that when crisis like this hits, you're well prepared and you can find opportunities. So I've been doing, you know, this this job, small cap investing in Australia for 18 years. So I've got a lot of experience in the space and met and seen a lot of companies over a long period of time. And I talked about two or three on average per day. So it gives you an insight into how much work we do. And, you know, there's still opportunities. There's still a lot of opportunities coming up and, um, you know, at reasonably priced businesses, um, even in the current environment. Do you like to keep like a bit of a, a watch list of, of stocks that you really want to own, um, mm. but you just can't get the, – the prices just aren't right at the moment? Um, yeah. You know, the kind of thing that probably I'm guessing would have come into, into use in, uh, in February and March of last year. Is that something that you do? Yeah, absolutely. So we have, what, if you might call it a bench, stocks that we'd like, a wish list of stocks you'd like to buy, absolutely. And you keep meeting them and talking to those businesses and understanding them. And, you know, sometimes you're relying on the share price coming off to create that opportunity, but sometimes something changes with the business as well, whereby the outlook improves uh, and therefore, you know, the, the valuation you can apply to that business is higher. So you can get it on both ways. You've got to keep keep looking and, and researching and, and trying to uncover those hidden gems and inevitably they, the opportunities come up one way or the other. Have you got any practical examples of that, either from uh, history or from your current portfolio that you could share? One, I just think it's an interesting take, you know, rather than waiting for the share price to drop, waiting for the, uh, mm. you know, waiting for that value realisation to happen for the company. Is there any any practical ones you could point out for us? Yeah, I'll give you an example. One that happened a couple of years ago at City Chic. So when in my, in my background of, um, you know, broking and in funds management pre-prime value, I often looked after the retail sector and covered the retail sector. And I used to look at uh, specialty fashion for many years and go and visit them to get insights on what was going on in the industry. And it always had troubles. It owned a lot of different businesses, um, you know, Miller's um, uh, and, a, and a bunch of others that sort of struggled and had a lot of leases, you know, so off balance sheet debt. But I kept hearing about this one business within the portfolio called City Chic that was doing really well whenever I met management. And then all of a sudden there was a restructure of the business and they separated City Chic from the rest of the assets. And all of a sudden you had this, the core, the gem within the portfolio standalone. So you could buy that business without all of the other troubled assets. And so we were able to move on that. We, um, well, we have a, we have a, a key pro, a process that we go through. So we built a model, spoke to management within a couple of days, we were buying that stock at about 70 cents at the time. Uh, and it's now you know, over $5. So it's been a, a, a great 
purchase over just over three years, I think. Yeah. What do the opportunities look like for the company today? Do you think that there's still growth ahead for, for City Chic? Yeah, absolutely. So we still own it in the portfolio and they are organic, growing organically and have consistently grown organically, putting COVID to the side, the disruptions. Um, and they, they will be a beneficiary too of the reopening. So they sold a lot of, sold a lot of dresses. I think 60% of the sales here in Australia were dresses pre-COVID and with nobody going out through COVID lockdowns and the like, then that part of the market will was very soft for them. Um, they pivoted to other more casual wear, but now with the economies opening up, because they sell into the US and the UK as well, with those economies reopening and people being able to go out, that dress, um, those dress, that dress market will be very strong, and more and more, you know, clothes will be sold um, uh, for that dynamic. So, um, absolutely, you've got that organic driver, and then you've got the acquisition opportunities as well. So they've got cash on their balance sheet and have proven very successful in the past at utilising that cash to buy very cheap acquisitions in the online space. So high high quality assets at very cheap prices. Because they've got quite a, a strong online presence compared to, you know, you, you don't typically think of clothes retail as uh, particularly small specialty ones mm. like that as being major online business. But from what I understand, they do actually do a significant of their business through those channels, don't they? Yeah. It's about 70% of sales online at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, a, that's a big portion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's a fundamentally becoming an online retailer. Absolutely. And it's in the plus size women's um, category, um, which is which is conducive to, to online retailing. Well, we got a little bit off track from what I wanted to, to be speaking about there, but always happy to, to take the opportunity to discuss some stocks. Um, but I did want to talk a little bit more about your process still um, and, and I guess your, your philosophy on investing. I know you spoke uh, with us, I think it was uh, last year you, you uh, were in our Sydney office and you, you spoke about the importance of assessing risks. I'd like to know how that fits into your strategy and like what are... What are some of the key or common risks that you're looking for when you're researching a company and how does it affect how you invest? Yeah. So from the very start, we screen out a lot of companies. So we don't invest in mining companies because they're largely driven by commodity prices, which are hard to forecast. You know, that visibility of earnings that I spoke about earlier is very difficult with mining companies. So we don't, we don't invest in them and we don't often invest in loss-making companies also. So you, you're obviously moving, removing a lot of risk there. And then in terms of the, at the business level, um, there's a lot of a lot of different risks we look at, um, you know, in terms of, you know, single point of reliance from, you know, a supplier or a customer side, you know, concentration, those sort of things come into place. Um, but but, but the, probably the most important element of risk is really about the quality of the business. I mean, that these are complex things and it's hard to summarise very quickly, but um, uh, if you've got a quality business and, and coming back to that rule of thumb I mentioned earlier about having visibility of earnings over the next few years, typically that's a business of high quality whereby the risks are much lower. Um, so that's probably the easiest way to think about it. If you've got a business where you can visualise and, and have high certainty that the, the where the earnings will be in the next few years, then typically that's a business with a relatively low risk profile. Then at the portfolio level, we look at a number of risks as well. So we have eight screens that we look at in terms of the portfolio. So things like liquidity of the of the stocks within the portfolio, the concentration within specific sectors, a qualitative quality factor um, that we do at a stock level and then we look at on, on average over the portfolio. So a lot of different factors that we look, to look at it on a portfolio level as well. 
So how does the, how do those risks feed into how you actually construct the portfolio in terms of position sizing? Yeah. So um, we often use IRRs or internal rate of return. Um, I think you want me probably to define what internal rate of return is quite quickly. So that's sort of the compound growth that you will get on that asset over a period of time. For example, if you had $100 today and in five years that will be $200, then the compound annual return or IRR would be around 15% per annum. So what we do is we forecast earnings out about three to five years. Um, going further than that can be quite difficult and is subject to more variance in the accuracy of your of your of your forecasts. But three to five years is a reasonable time frame. We then apply what would be a reasonable multiple on that business over that at that time. That gives you the potential return. You've got dividends coming through in the meantime as well. So that gives you an idea of the return that you'll generate. Now we won't put the company with the highest return at the largest weight in the portfolio. We will then look at the risks of each company and assess how that fits. And typically the companies with the lowest risk will actually have a higher weighting. So we might have a company that has a potential IRR of 10% um, and that may actually be a much larger weighting than a company that has a potential IRR of 20%. So it comes back to the preservation of capital, protecting the downside, trying to get good risk-adjusted returns over the long term. And that focus on three to five years is really useful too. We don't, it's, not, it's not exclusively used for the way that we look at companies, but it is a key method that we've used, we do use. And probably more so recently as well with COVID because you've had a lot of companies where they've either had a, a, an unsustainable spike in earnings which you therefore should not put a multiple on that unsustainable earnings or, or the opposite where they've been hit and they've under, you know, the earnings are, are very low on, due to a temporary issue. So by looking out a few years, you can look beyond those you know, short-term issues and think about the business and the potential longer-term returns. I know you obviously don't want to extrapolate those one-off you know, uh, booms that you get from something like COVID. I, mm. I think retail is a good example of that. Certainly you, you don't uh, you don't want to assume, as you said, put a multiple on it and assume that it's continuing in the future. Do you still ascribe a value to those one-offs? So does they still, is it still something yeah. that you're considering when you're making your assessment? Yeah, they are. Yeah. And, um, you know, often when you're doing that IRR and you're looking at three to five years, you can either do it on a simple PE or you can do an EBIT multiple for example, and in, in which case you'd be using the cash in the in the calculation of the valuation in those periods. But the, the, the earnings in one to, over one to two years, we'd put a PE of one or two on those um, rather than, say, the average market multiple of 20 times. And that's where often the market gets it wrong. It, it, you have a, a short-term um, boost in earnings and then the market will actually put a higher multiple on that short-term boost. So instead of one or two times on those earnings, they'll put you know 30 or 40 times on those earnings, which is obviously the inefficiency and where the, where the opportunities come in or the risks lie in, in, in investing. Well, you mentioned earlier that you, uh, before you went overseas, you uh, were the media analyst um, on, the, on the sell side. Um, we must be. Uh, I, I don't want to give your your age away too much, but I, I, I think we're going back to the nineties here, if I'm not mistaken. That's yet. right. Yeah, <laughs> mid to late nineties. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the companies, uh, not one or probably the the most enduring company um, in, in when you talk about media in Australia, and probably the most important company when you talk about media in Australia over the years has, of course, been News Corp. News Corp, obviously, well, not just News Corp, but the entire media landscape looks 
vastly, mm. vastly different today to what it did in the 90s. If, if I'm not mistaken, in the late 90s, News Corp was actually the largest company in Australia, which seems crazy now thinking that it's a small cap. Um, what, are, what are some of the opportunities you see in the industry to today? Um, you know, what, is, what are some of the differences that you see and, and what does the future of the industry look like moving forward? Yeah. So obviously, you know, massive changes over that that twenty odd year period of time. Massive changes. I mean, back in those days, the quality assets were TV and newspapers, which are now the most structurally challenged assets within that portfolio. And back in those days, that was literally the the, the period at which Seek and and realestate dot com um, uh, and car sales were all being founded. So you know, massive changes. You know, the portals are really the the online classified portals are really the places which which dominate media now. They're the, they're the quality businesses most of those are large cap as opposed to to small cap domains really the only real small cap um, and you know back in those days you had some real real characters in the industry as well because of the you know the the quality of the business and the political influence that these assets had you know you had the obviously the Mur- Murdochs which are still in the industry and the Packers and you know Izzy Asper owned uh, Channel 10 and the Fairfaxes and um, you know the O'Reilly family from Ireland as well so it was a it was an amazing period um, and it's much more subdued now um, but um, but the and outside of those online portals, I think the most of the businesses now now are more about sort of cash flow um, harvesting, and it's really about sustaining the earnings and sustaining the cash flow rather than rather than big growth. So, um, you know, media is changing, and I think it's going to continue to change. That that structural forces are, are inevitable. They're going to continue to go the way they are. Um, we think News Corp is actually really interesting in, in terms of the from an investment perspective. It's had a really good run, so it's it's not quite as good as it was you know a couple of years ago. It's up. 50 odd percent in the last couple of years and we actually hold it in the portfolio um, but it owns you know 62 percent of realestate.com and um and dow jones in the us and move which is a, kind of the equivalent of realestate.com in the us except it's the number two rather than the number one um, and you know those assets are all if you put the assets on evaluation and and on some of the parts you, know, you can get a valuation well above where the share price is now and they're all in a sweet spot in the in the economic cycle too, They're, you know, most of those assets are growing. So you're getting really high quality assets at a, at a reasonable, probably a cheap price, and they're actually growing their earnings. It's a good point in the cycle. So it's one of the more interesting ones, I think, at the moment, even even notwithstanding the fact that it's had a good run over the last couple of years. How much of that uh, of the valuation of the company do you see is coming from uh, its holding in realestate.com.au? I know mm. a couple of years ago I've, I heard people commenting that essentially – you were getting all the other assets for free and yeah. you were basically just paying for, for, for realestate.com. Is that still the case with the price run up or are you paying a bit more for those assets now? Yeah, it's a little, it's not quite as good as that now. So you put the cash as well. They've got cash on the balance sheet, net cash. So you put the cash in the realestate.com if you like the liquid assets and they're around about 80% of the value of News Corp. And then you're getting a lot of other really, really high quality assets in and you're not paying much for it. So, you know, if you look at the total market cap of News Corp and it's dual listed and there's a couple of different um, um, uh, share structures, but um, it's about $20 billion. So you're paying about $4 billion or so for all those other assets. And those, you know, you could, you could get that valuation easily for Dow Jones alone. So you're getting, you know, you can look, cut it and dice it many different ways, but it, pretty much whichever way you cut it and dice it, it's, it's, it's cheap and attractive at the moment. I'd be curious to know, like, what are, what is one of your favourite companies in the industry today? What, what are the companies that stand out as, you know, having great prospects 
now. You mean in media or more yeah, broadly? Yeah, in media I'm speaking specifically, yeah. There's not a lot to choose of in media right now, particularly in the small caps because you, you can't buy the realestate.coms and the seek and the, and the car sales. But we do have a, have a holding, a smaller holding in um, Southern Cross Broadcasting as well which is more of a, of a value play, if you like. So it's a free cash flow yield type play as opposed to a growth play. And um, it's it's going to benefit from the recovery in advertising markets. You know, retail is the biggest driver of, of advertising in Australia and retail has been very strong. We're seeing advertising recover. Its balance sheet's been pretty much repaired through the um, – through the capital raising they did last year. And I think that'll put them in a position to pay out a very, very high payout ratio. So you can see that the earnings are growing. You can see the catalyst for the the business to have a higher valuation put on it. That is the yield will look very attractive, you know, in the, in the coming six, 12 months. So that's another one we own. And that's pretty much the only two we own in the media sector at the moment. Well, Switching to another sector, which um, which I understand you have a few holdings in. I don't know exactly how many, but I've no, uh, but I have spotted a couple, uh, which is the listed funds management sector. Yeah. It's an interesting one, obviously, because it's it's a, a sector that you work in and, yeah. and that that we work uh, you know closely adjacent to. I actually saw recently. I'm not sure if this was one of your holdings or not, but Pinnacle Investments is. Uh, oh, it clearly it is. is. Yeah, <laughs> Pinnacle Investments. Um, I saw was the number one performing non resources small cap in the ASX 200 over the, the preceding 12 months. Um, that was a couple of weeks ago. It might have changed now, but but it, it, it's a sector that's obviously received a lot of attention um, mm. in recent times, but also one that's traditionally, I think, flown under the radar a little bit. Mm. So I'd like to hear what, you know, from an, I guess, from a, an economic point of view, what attracts you to this style of business? Yeah. So they can be great, great um, investments. Uh, fund managers, they because they can grow fast and have a low um, capital uh, requirement, so you can grow without any any need for capital. So capital light businesses. The there's two key drivers of um, of a fund management business. First, you need the fund manager or the or the product, if you like. So good fund managers that uh, can generate good returns for investors. And Pinnacle has 16 affiliates that are, are very, very good fund managers. So you've, they've got that. And, they, and then the second part is distribution. So you need a team who can go out and effectively sell that product or attract funds under management to grow the business and, and generate the profits and the economics of, of the business. And Pinnacle are also very strong on that side as well. So both you know here in Australia and also increasingly global as well for asset managers that are Australian, but also increasingly global as well. So, um, and the other the other thing that's really, really attractive about Pinnacle is that they are improving the quality of the business over time. So the type of um, FUM or funds under management that they're generating is stickier, high quality FUM. And they're bringing on more and more affiliates, which is diversifying the type of assets within the funds management group. So it's growing strongly. The quality of the business is improving as well over time, which makes it really, really attractive. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a holding within the fund. You're right. How are these types – I'm not referring just to Pinnacle here. Mm. I'm talking about the industry more broadly. How are they kind of placed today given, you know, there's been a lot of – talk about the rise of passive management that we've seen over the last 10 years or so. A lot of the flows have gone to passive rather than active. And then more recently, it seems as though there's a bit of a trend towards 
um, you know, people taking control of it themselves uh, and, you know, discount online brokerages, you know, your, your, uh, your stakes and your, uh, in, in Australia and your, your Robin Hoods in the US and the like. Mm. Do you think that those types of trends have a significant impact on the business opportunities for active managers in this sector? I think you're, you're absolutely right. They are taking share, those elements that you talked about. Um, perhaps the Robin Hood, you could argue, is actually new money coming into the industry, but but passive, absolutely. Um, I think there's always a place, though, for a fund manager that can generate good returns for for their investors, um, that have a good product, uh, that charge you know reasonable and not, and not excessive fees. I think there'll always be a place for that, and it can outperform. I mean, um, you should really, when you look at a funds management product, you know, as a as an investor and not a fund manager, you should look at the after tax after fee returns. And you know, I'm perhaps a bit biased, but working in the small cap sector, I mean, fund managers in the small cap sector are renowned for doing very well and outperforming. Um, you know, and our funds outperformed by about 10, 12 percent, actually 12 percent per annum over the last three years. So you can actually get really good returns, um, and there's a value for that. So I think even in spite of the fact of passive coming into the industry, there will be a place for the likes of Pinnacle and other quality fund managers out there. How long do you think uh, you need to be looking at in terms of performance history? Like I know there's a lot of research that actually shows that looking at 12-month performance and and allocating based on that can actually be a negative for your, mm. for your, your investment returns. What kind of periods do you think are a good time to assess a manager's uh, skill over? I think I think you've got to take it in the context of the period, but um, you know what with what we've had in the last eighteen months or so with COVID, that's a great period because that that eighteen months is probably worth five years in a normal period because you've had you know very very bearish periods and then very bullish periods and a full cycle. So that 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 period of time is worth more, I think. Um, and you're right, in terms of the 12-month context, over the last 12 months, the market's been really strong. So you could have a fund manager who's done uh, very poorly through the down period um, and then rebounded strongly over the last 12 months, but their performance over that, that total period is actually not that great. So you've got to, exactly, I agree with what you're saying, but sort of three years on average is, is a reasonable period, I think, in normal times. And then, you know, more recently, you know, the last 12, 18 months is probably worth even more than that. I think we may have already touched on this. Correct me if I'm wrong. I was going to ask you what you preferred, uh, what you preferred holding in the in the kind of listed funds management sector is. It have, is that what we've already discussed, or is there another company that you'd like to point? No, to? No, I think Pinnacle, Pinnacle's our main holding in the in the sector. Yeah, yeah. And the other, the other interesting thing is that it, what it plays into as holding fund managers is that it gives you some beta to the market, if you like. Like we're very very strong performers in down markets. We want to be sure that we don't get left behind when markets run. And by having some beta, so fund managers are, are leveraged to the market, it gives you some of that market leverage, which helps you on the upside as well. So it plays a role not just in an individual stock level, but it plays a role in the portfolio structure as well. Yeah, yeah. I think a few years ago, I can't, I can't remember who it was that said this, I, but I'm, I know I'm taking credit for somebody else's comment here, but I heard someone say that buying a listed fund man, funds management firm was a bit like taking a, a levered bet on the performance of the underlying fund that they manage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true, yeah. And that's the beauty of, of, of Pinnacle and that you have 16 different affiliates. You don't have that concentrated exposure to one fund. Well, I want to talk a bit about the opening up trade. It's one that we we saw play out a lot last year, but this year's really thrown a um, a bit of a spanner in the works as things have unopened up uh, more recently. Uh, we, we've seen lockdowns happening again. You know, even in the UK, 
opening up is taking a lot longer than than any of us thought. And rollouts, I mean, obviously Australia is well behind the eight ball, but even through much of Europe, um, a lot of the developing world, they're just the vaccine rollouts are probably not happening as fast as a lot of people would have expected or hoped. So this this idea, I think, of the opening opening up trade has started to to, to re-enter people's minds um, in in more recent weeks and months. So I'd I'd like to revisit that idea. Could you tell us about a, a company that you uh, that you think benefits from that opening up, but which hasn't been fully priced in yet? Yeah, sure. So within probably the top 15 holdings of our portfolio is a a company called United Malt Group, which plays into that space, exactly what you're talking about. So it's it's a beneficiary of the reopening because it's basically a maltster. It provides malt to brewers and distillers or whiskey whiskey makers in the case of distillers. And about 30% of its revenue comes through from um, craft brewers. So craft brewers often don't have the capability to do their own bottling or canning and they sell, they put into kegs and sell into pubs and restaurants. And with pubs and restaurants shut, they have no distribution means. So um, they got hit through the last 12 months in particular um, because of the of the issues with COVID. Um, this is United Malt. And keep in context too that about 60% of its revenues from the US, 20% from the UK. So they're not just an Australian play, they're more of a global play. With the vaccine rollout that you mentioned, um, you know, the US and the UK have really been leading that, in particular the US. And we're seeing the US uh, open up now and, you know, more and more restrictions being loosened up. It's state by state and it's changing, as you, as you said, but it's, it is definitely a clear trend that there is a reopening. And the return of craft brewers and the return of volumes for United Malt are coming back and rebounding on the back of that as well. You uh, you mentioned there the importance of craft brewing um, at, to their to their business. Um, could you explain why? I mean, if if the craft brewers are not distributing it enough, why would they not just sell more malt to the major brewers? I mean, obviously the beer was being consumed. What's the difference from them from a business perspective of selling to a you know to a Carlton United breweries as opposed yeah. to uh, you know co-conspirators brewery or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. So the the margins that they make on a craft brewer are much better than they are through a major brewer. And there's two reasons. One is that, you know, the major brewers obviously buy in volume, so they get volume discounts and therefore it's less profitable for United Malt. And secondly, the craft brewer typically uses more specialty malts um, and more malt in total as well within the beer. So it's a much higher, um, it's more profitable um, business for, for United Malt. How has the business progressed since they demerged from Grain Corp? Actually, I think it was right in the, I think it was just as we were shutting down uh, yeah. the first the first time, if I recall correctly, around February March last year. So obviously, United Malt Group used to be part of Grain Corp, and those split off. Then, obviously, it's a difficult time to be to have that demerge. But how's the how's the business progressing now? Yeah, so it's actually Grain Corp's been the one that actually performs much better, much better, and generally considered. I think people consider United Malt Group the higher quality of the two, which is interesting. Because, you know, Grain Corp's been the uh, exposure to the rural sector, which has done really well here in Australia. And the reason that they separated, it's worth just taking a step back on, onto that reason, is that, you know, they, they were put together initially because they thought there'd be synergies and there hasn't been much in the, in the way of synergies. They're very different businesses. And Grain Corp's earnings were much more volatile. So it meant that it made it hard for United Malt to invest in growth initiatives because they weren't sure of the cash flow certainty that was going to come through to underpin the investment in, in the business. 
Now they were separated, as you said, about just over twelve months ago, right? Right as COVID was hitting, and it's been obviously a tough time for United Malt over that period because of what we spoke about with you know bars and restaurants shutting and hurting the the, the craft brewing side of things. Now I think is the interesting time because now we're coming on the back of that, and the vaccines have been rolled out, and the craft brewers are coming back. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of different stats out there and, and it is changing, but there's indications that, you know, in the US and UK, we're probably back to about 70 to 80% of pre-COVID levels in terms of on-premise consumption of alcohol. So that's, you know, um, bars and restaurants, um, uh, which is obviously playing into the, to the craft side. An interesting thing too, I mean, getting away a little bit from your question, but underpinning the, the investment um, thesis behind it, you know, United Malt was making about 70 million in net profit pre-COVID. So it gives you an idea of what that business can generate. They've also announced um, a cost out and efficiency program, which can generate about 25 million in after-tax um, benefits to the business. And um, there's been some costs come in, so you can't just add the one, you know, the one, the two together and get and get your number. We do we do quite detailed uh, modelling, but this gives you an idea of back of the envelope idea of where where you can get to. Um, you, know, you can get close to 100 million dollars in net profit after tax, and the, and the business has got a, a market capitalisation of 1.3 billion. So it's on a sort of a, a low teen, mid teen PE multiple, which compares to the market on about 20 times so it's obviously relatively cheap and it's one of those ones that even though it's hurt by COVID it is actually been profitable through COVID so you contrast that with the other reopening plays like travel where you know they're burning cash and you know they're, they're actually valued at very very high multiples this is a business where you're not burning cash so you have less risk around the the balance sheet and sustainability of the business and the multiple is actually much more attractive as well so it, it stacks up to us as a really attractive reopening play. Great. Well, I think that's it for the main part of the interview, but I'm sure you already know what comes here as a, as a regular listener of the show. Um, but I've got some favourite questions that I like to ask every one of my guests. Um, so if you've got another couple of minutes to hang around, um, yeah, then we'll jump into those now. Um, could you tell me about a book that has either really impressed you or really been influential on your investment philosophy? It's a bit hard because you do so much reading and done over a long period of time. But I'll, I'll tell you a book, and it's a it's a bit of a cliche because it's about Buffett, all right? <laughs> so forgive me, but it's but it's called The Snowball by Alice Schroeder, and it's a really interesting read. And it's an interesting read because a lot of your listeners are probably not not investment professionals; they're they're more um, just interested in the investment side of things. And you you learn a lot of lessons about the power of compounding and long term returns and the quality of businesses. But it's also an interesting story about a person, you know, Buffett, and some of his warts and all in there as well not just sugar-coated fan book if you like so i think it's a really good read and it gives you a lot of interesting lessons as well as always i'll put a link up on the wire to this podcast on livewiremarkets.com uh, to both booktopia and amazon so as not to play favorites there um, if you'd like to check that book out for yourself the name again is the snowball uh by uh, what's her surname alice schroeder schroeder thank you yeah. um I should be an easy one to remember in the in the Australian funds management industry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, could you tell me about one of your biggest gains or losses? What were the lessons that you took from the experience? Um, biggest gains, one of the great gains that we spoke about earlier has been City Chic, and that's that's probably been one of the best. Certainly, I think it's been one of the best returning ones over the last twelve months or so. Um, and one of the lessons there is, I mean, you've just got to do the work. You've got to get out and look and see companies and, and try and uncover gems. And you just don't know when that work's going to pay off. 
you know, it, it all of a sudden, you know, the opportunity comes up and if you're not prepared, then you, then you miss it. So that's, that's one of the key things. Um, and also the management are really good. You know, the importance of management, how they, they manage that business. The guys in there at the moment are really, really strong managers and you have a lot of confidence that they will drive the business forward. One more question for you. Um, and uh, as you know, uh, before I ask it, I always like to insert a little bit of a disclaimer. Mm. Uh, don't try this at home. We're not actually suggesting uh, to anybody that you go out there and put all of your money in a single stock and forget about it for five years. This is supposed to be a bit of an exercise in long-term thinking and hopefully a little bit of fun. So with that being said, if markets were going to close for the next five years, starting from tomorrow, and you could only own shares in one company, what would it be? I'm going to pick one that's a little bit under the radar rather than an obvious one um, to make it a little bit more interesting, and that's that's equity trustees or EQT. So it's only covered by one analyst in the market. It's got a market cap around $600 million. Um, it was founded in 1888, so it's got a history of over 130 years, which gives you a, a perspective on the sustainability of the business and the fact that you're pretty confident to be around in, in another five years' time. Its role is as a, is a, as a trustee for corporate and super funds on one part of the business, and that's a very, very sticky part of the business. They're, they're very rarely changed. And then on the other side, on the private side of things, they do often perpetual trusts whereby they look after money and distribute that money in a perpetual nature as the, as the name suggests. So that that is a revenue stream that that is you know, very, very long dated. Um, it grows over time, assuming that markets go up and they make a, a positive return on that. So that's um, you know very, very high, high quality income stream. And I think the business is, is probably doesn't get enough attention in terms of the quality of the business. It is in the Australian market um, and it's a business that will do really well, I think, over the next five years, assuming that markets go up or stay flat because it does have a little bit of leverage to, to markets. It's the only one, um, the one thing I'd say about it. Great. Well, Richard, thanks for coming in today. Uh, it's been great to talk to you. Nice to have a face-to-face -to -face interview uh, with somebody in this in the day and age of COVID. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I hope we can speak to you again sometime. Great. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Thank you. Well, that's the end of the show. If you made it this far, I hope that means you enjoyed it. So please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Or if you're a live wire reader, give this wire a like. Thanks for tuning in.